Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris. It's good to be back with you again today. All right, so just a couple show notes before we get started. First, I wanted to mention that I uploaded on this podcast feed a uh, few days ago an interview that I did on the Reclaiming the Faith podcast with Phil Baker. And I think it was it went really well. It's a, He asked some good questions that I had some time to prepare beforehand. And it was just a lot of uh, information in that podcast about Bible prophecy. And I say a lot of things there that I you know, maybe have said in other places, but not as, you know, it's, it's got a lot of info there. So if you haven't listened to that and you're interested in Bible prophecy stuff and the, what I think about Bible prophecy, that's a great podcast to listen to. Again, that's Reclaiming the Faith. Uh, .podbean.com. You can also check out Phil Baker's book, which is Faithful Witness, The Early Church's Theology of Martyrdom. So you can get an idea that uh, Phil Baker and I, you know, feel kind of the same way. You know, the pre-wrath concept is one of the things I think is, is beneficial for the church and, and the theology of pre-wrath is that it gives the uh, Christian sort of time to dwell on what martyrdom is like in their life and to, in a sense, anticipate that that would be their likely end if we were in the end times, whereas the other views typically don't um, have any reason to dwell on that. And of course, that's the great number of, uh, of the historical Christians lived in that world and not the somewhat aberration that we are in in the, in the West in the last, uh, I don't know, couple hundred years or something like that. Uh, moving on to the podcast, I guess one more show note. I did want to mention the Bible Prophecy Archive, BibleProphecyArchive.com, which is all kinds of, uh, of movies and, and books and free material of all kinds on one file that you can download there. I will also mail you a USB drive for free if you would like it in that uh, way. Uh, if there is anything that goes down with the grid or the uh, anything like that, I would very much like this uh, information to survive. So that's the reason for BibleProphecyArchive.com. We'll be coming out with uh, uh, 2.0 very soon. Well, I don't know exactly how soon, but not too far from now with more material. That website, again, is BibleProphecyArchive.com. Okay, so this is going to be a notes show, which means to me I go through my notes and talk about things that have interested me over the past few weeks and things I have something to say about. The first is the Elon Musk Twitter thing, because I think that there are some serious things happening with this that a lot of people are, are missing. So setting aside for the moment the idea of is Elon Musk a good guy or a bad guy, I will say he does seem to be an incredibly intelligent guy. I would imagine his IQ is quite high. Um, where he is right now and the history of his family, or I don't know, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But let's just talk about the Twitter thing. The thing that interests me about this is something he said early on in this whole thing about, I'm going to buy Twitter. He was saying that he wanted to make the algorithm uh, public domain, to make it open source. And that is the thing that can't be allowed to happen. I don't think that the Twitter buying, that may be fought back with the margin calls and some other stuff. I would not be surprised if they throw everything at this. So I wouldn't be surprised if we start hearing the word margin call a lot. And that means that they're fighting back really, really hard with this. But set aside for that for a moment, let's go back to the algorithm. The reason this is dangerous is that if the algorithm in a place like Twitter, like you could do what I'm about to say with some new thing that you just developed, and that's fine, but it doesn't really matter because nobody's over there and it doesn't have everybody on there. It doesn't have, it, it, it's, Twitter is indispensable at this point as a mouthpiece for the world right now. It is the public forum. And that's, 
that's one of the reasons what I'm about to say is so critical. Um, and so much of the news is based on Twitter and all this other stuff. So the algorithm being made public and open source, what that does is it allows people to look at that algorithm and verify whatever it's doing. And in this scenario, we would assume that it is mostly going to be a merit-based algorithm. So there's two components to this. Number one, that the algorithm that is public, well, three, I guess. The, number one, that the algorithm that is proposed is merit-based, meaning what good content will float to the top of everyone's feeds and everybody will be shown it more because it's deemed good essentially by everyone. In other words, merit-based. Number two, that people can verify that that algorithm is correct, that it is working in that merit-based system. That's part of what's showing people what the algorithm is does, is that they can verify it. And now that they know that what they are seeing is in fact what the majority of people are interested in, the, the trending and all that stuff as well. Okay, and I guess uh, that, and, and, and so my first thought was, if they do that every single narrative that is so critical. I mean, this whole house of cards of this globalist uh, coup d'etat is is narrative-based. And this one thing has the unique ability to collapse all narratives. And the reason is because when something floats to the top that's against the narrative, the social proof aspect is what is going to do the damage to the narrative. So, for example... Now, let's just take something that is not supposed to be known, vaccine um, issues, side effects and all the stuff, I, whatever, uh, or Hunter's laptop or all the things, whatever, just and new things, lots of truth stuff that's completely against everything that the narrative believes, right? If that floats to the top and they see all those numbers and they know that those numbers are valid because they can see the algorithm, then they know that the majority of the world believes and likes this thing that is completely against the narrative. And that's the power of propaganda. Propaganda makes you feel like you are a part of the group. It makes you feel like you're doing the right thing. And the people that do what they don't want you to do, are they the wrong minority? And very few people believe that crazy stuff. And all that stuff is completely thrown out the window in this scenario. So an interesting aspect to this is that I'd posted this on Twitter and then I'd found out that Elon Musk had actually said this very same thing, like something like three, four years ago in some kind of interview where he made this exact point that if you could, uh, if, if people could see that, hey, everybody else likes this post too, that's what changes the whole world is the social proof aspect of it. And that's when I was like, this guy actually sees this issue. Not only does he understand that, not only did he say we need to make the algorithm public, he knew what the, and anybody that was paying attention should have known the shockwave that will happen in the world discourse if that happens. And to see him essentially uh, point out that exact psychology uh, in relationship to, I don't know if it was Twitter specific al algorithms, but algorithms in general uh, was made me think that this is something different. And, and if you, I know there's detractors and say, ah, well, he creates brain chips and all this other stuff. And we'll talk about that in a minute, but, but I can't think of a single scenario in which this plays into anything. You could say, ah, oh, well, it's to give the uh, masses some kind of hope that they can have free speech or something like that. It's like, well, why even do that? It was going along just fine with Twitter as it was, or it, from their perspective, or Facebook as it was. There was, there was no need to rock that boat just to give people a little bit of hopium, you know, that, that, 
that doesn't really track in terms of a, a motivation. In other words, for this to be some sort, so part of some nefarious plan, it's it would be playing, it would be playing such an insanely dangerous game from their perspective with no obvious benefit. Um, so I don't know. That's that's kind of where I'm at at this. I think that the next step, if I'm right, is to have a major backlash against this from a financial perspective. These big hedge funds can do some tricks with this to force some margin calls, and I think that. Elon Musk, if he is smart, he has an interesting backstory with this too, because uh, he's he's been the focus of shorts and all kinds of stuff within this dirty game that people with money play with uh, margin calls and all the different stuff that happens with this kind of world. So it's it's not like he's an amateur at this, and he wouldn't necessarily have expected it. But anyway, let's move on really quickly to the idea that Elon Musk is a bad guy. Let's just look at it from, let's trust him at first and take him at, at his word. And he says he's making brain chips to uh, help disabled people and these kinds of things. I think he at one point said that he also believes that AI is going to get too smart and it's going to help us to, uh, to uh, uh, compete with AI, which is a thought, by the way, that I think that you get if you are really smart and have thought through a lot of stuff. Because I, if you think about that, it could, it's an interesting thought, basically, is all I'm going to say about that. So a couple things. The first is that looking into his family history and stuff like that, I don't see those kind of telltale signs. Possibly with his mother and his uh, and his grandfather and his mother's side, there's some a little bit of that sort of moneyed uh, uh, globalist kind of technocracy stuff going on there. Uh, but again, somebody could change, somebody could get radically saved, somebody could whatever. And if you did believe he grew up in that system, which I do think that people that are really smart do rise to the top in that system because they are tested early on. And those with high IQs are that way since they were little and are you able to tell and groom that person to take over certain industries or be public facing or whatever. It's a very merit-based system, a lot like the military uh, moving on to the brain chip thing, and I think that people, look, I'm not going to ever get a brain chip, but let's think through that from a biblical Mark of the Beast perspective, because I think that's what the core of this, and, and it comes from a theory that I believe is not particularly clear at all about the Mark of the Beast, and I've mentioned this before, but a lot of people, they don't like the idea, right, that it, the, the Bible says that the people that get the mark of the beast, they go to hell. That's the criteria. You get it, you go to hell. So because people don't like that, they have created a new theology that the mark of the beast changes you. And now it's not God's problem that he says that if you get it, that you can't go to heaven. Now it's the person never wanted to go to heaven because they got changed because the mark of the beast is a chip that gets into your brain and now you don't want to go to heaven. You want to only worship the Antichrist. And so now, since you don't want to, you can't go to heaven. That's basically this long way around to believing that the mark of the beast is some kind of brain chip. It's because it's a rejection of the theology that God just makes a hard distinction that says, look, if you worship the Antichrist and that's it, and the mark of the beast is your agreement to worship the Antichrist, the worship of the Antichrist is not something you do in a private way. It's something that you go to the temple and do with gold, silver, precious stones and other things. That's and I'm sure other ways to worship the Antichrist, worshiping literally the image of the beast who is probably Satan in physical proximity to Satan or whoever's indwelling or do, has anything to do with the image of the beast or however that goes. So yeah, it's kind of a big deal if you take the mark of the beast to worship the beast. Anyway, so that's what I think the Bible is just saying. 
And let's talk about the other brain chip thing. So I just don't, I rail against the idea that everybody's going to be forced to get a brain chip in the end times. I mean, the logistics of that isn't, it's insane. Even if you price in the massive depopulation that they want to have, it's still an insane concept to force everybody to get a brain chip. I mean, all the surgeons and all the chips, I mean, we got, and, and here's the thing that really gets me. I don't see the, the end times world after everything that I think comes before we actually get to the mark of the beast thing, which comes at the middle of the seven year period, right? Three and a half years into the last days. And now we're going to tell me we're going to have a brain chip program that is going to require all this electricity and battery powers and who knows whatever. I mean, maybe it's powered off, whatever, but it's still a lot of technology. I'm sure you got to upload to computers and whatever. I don't see that, that we're in a world with a whole lot of working stuff like that. I kind of look at it uh, as the Hunger Games world in which they're opulent and they're decadent, but kind of outside their borders, it's a war-torn dystopia, you know, with burnout buildings and stuff. I mean, they, they may be opulent and dec decadent in the capital and have some measure of technology and really cool technology even, but the vast majority of the world is sort of in trouble. And, and I don't know, I just don't see it. And I could be wrong about this. I the thing about this particular theory about the mark of the beast being something that controls you and changes you is I believe it's not, it's certainly not in the Bible, but it is a way to interpret what the Bible says. You can look at the Bible like that. And I'm not trying to say it won't happen like that or that it's unbiblical. I mean, it depends on how you define unbiblical. The Bible doesn't say it, but you could reasonably interpret the Bible that way if you wanted to and not be like off base. But I just think there are lots of easier, normal explanations that come before brain chips. Um, and I don't know, I guess I've never, I under, never really understood the technocracy. I understand that it's something they want, but I look at it more like a, uh, I look at it more like a carrot for the, them to believe that they can have eternal life or something at some point. And it is in, from a secular point of view, of course, which presumably Elon Musk is coming from, it is the final frontier of humanity. I mean, if you believed, if you believed just normal secular worldview, yes, brain chips and being able to download and upload your consciousness would be like sort of, hey, if, is, if this is possible, then we should do it, right? I mean, that's the way that you would look at it. And again, I think that Elon Musk or any other person can change their views, even if they did. I, I think that his mother, her grandfather was into technocracy stuff, but not necessarily Illuminati stuff. I don't know. I can't. She's got this picture of his mom doing exactly the eye thing with the pyramid of her arm. So that's not cool, you know. So I don't. I think that there's. I think that there. I don't know what to think of him, but I do know this that he does appear to be much smarter than the average person. And it wouldn't surprise me to find that he is outsmarting most of the people and that, but I'm excited about it as you might be able to tell, but I am also very sure that as stated, that can happen. And if it does happen, that is to say a Twitter algorithm being open sourced and Twitter still existing in the future, it could change everything. So I hope it's true. I can't see them allowing it to be true. And I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt because I don't see any obvious downside or, or, or reason why it wouldn't work. Now, here is the other part of this. He did make a claim early on, which I think is a valid thing in, for, in, in defense of free speech. He said, I don't think these, these um, uh, companies should be making 
laws, I mean, we shouldn't be censoring people over and above the law. If the law says you can't say something, sure, we'll censor that. But we're not going to like come up with new rules to necessarily prohibit somebody from doing a thing or, or whatever. So that was his statement. And then Barack Obama makes a speech what a couple weeks ago that basically says we need a government agency to be the ministry of truth. And lo and behold, we just pop up with one and, and, and have somebody rolled out to be the ministry of truth. That's crazy talk, because that is exactly the biggest counterpoint that you can make to this. Now, I would think there always was going to be a ministry of truth of some kind in a globalist system. It is absolutely critical to, as I said, the narrative is everything to them, and they have to control what is true and what isn't. It is it is one of the, it's why Winston in 1984 worked at the Ministry of Truth. He was a perfect protagonist in it. You know, he was right in the middle of the heart of that system. And so it was always going to exist, but this this feels rushed. What they did, Barack Obama announcing it and happening two weeks later, they basically chose the person and, 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 and shoved it out into the public view in this clunky way. It, it I believe it's rushed. And so it's this thing that they always plan to do, but it's coming too early and it looks on its face like so much of this, it's obviously wrong. It's obviously bad. And hopefully a lot of people, even more that were before, are waking up to that. But like everything else these days, they have so much power, it kind of doesn't matter what anybody thinks anymore. Power is all that matters. As Orwell himself said, he said, you know, at first they try to trick you and they lie to you and they try to make everything you believe buy into the system. That's always the first thing. But eventually it's just power. Eventually they just have so much power that it doesn't really matter what you think. You can hate it all you want. Um, but the ministry of the truth Ministry of Truth thing is the precursor to what they will actually end up doing for Christians. It's a roundabout way. Um, you know, tolerance and hate speech has always been the sort of watchword of wokeism and, and, and the globalist sort of morality, because it's that that they'll eventually use against uh, uh, Christians, because it's the perceived or, you know, lack of tolerance or whatever uh, that they'll eventually use to crack down on um uh, Christians, but I think that's a long way off. I mean, that's that's something to make Christianity illegal in the future. In the in the meantime, they're just going to use it to uh, basically consolidate power. Uh, I, I think Christians are always on the back burner, but the but the systems that are being developed uh, are important uh, uh, for the creation of the system. Moving on to the Russia Ukraine issue, and I would say with this that early on, I still don't exactly know what's going on there. Uh, I think a lot of the commentators early on and now really aren't sure how to make sense of all the data, that the, the actions being taken on every side here uh, don't add up. And so people are, are having trouble sort of coming up with a unification theory of what this is about, because it makes so little sense from a normal perspective of geopolitics. And I would say that there is one thing that I've plugged in recently that seems to make all the weird things make sense. And that is that the globalists want a thermonuclear war with Russia and the United States. If you look at the like the World Economic Forum website, I did search for like nuclear and uh, they've got articles from years back. I think I may have talked about this already, but, you know, showing the Russia arsenals and the U.S. arsenals and how something has to be done with these two nuclear arsenals. Um, I've seen these these uh, uh, 
graphs of and uh, and animations of what would happen in a, in a nuclear war between uh, Russia and the United States and all the initial stuff and the fallout and all the different things. And the most of the world would be fine-ish. I mean, they would have some issues and definitely some nuclear winter stuff and whatever, but would be pretty devastating to the West. We'll just say it like that. But there's lots of the world that wouldn't be affected and they would continue as uh, whatever. And if they did continue... If they, if they knew what was... Well, let me back up a little bit. So what are some of the things that make sense if we are doing this? I think the provocation of Russia, I think by now everybody kind of gets it, that we're provoking Russia on a diplomatic issue that they said, hey, look, this is a red line for us. Don't do it. We were totally... Nobody even questioned that forever. And all of a sudden we're just start stomping on that red line. Uh, and saying, no, this is what we have to do for Ukraine, or let's stop on this red line as much as we possibly can. It was like everybody was looking at it like normal people were looking at that, saying, this is weird. And then obviously our intervention in a military way, we, we're not, we're sending so much money over there. It's so much money that that in itself is an obvious provocation. And what we're do, what they're doing with that money is buying much, much better weapons to shoot down their planes and to sink their aircraft carriers or whatever. It, it's, it's not insignificant what that money isn't being spent over spent on. And if we're bringing our own military people in there, it's, it's a matter of time. None of this makes sense unless we want a nuclear war. I mentioned this before, but I do think that that is what is happening. I saw a meme the other day of uh, Nancy Pelosi shaking hands with Vladimir Zelensky in a recent visit. And on her side, it said $140 million net worth been in politics for 30 some odd years. And on his side, it said $550 million net worth been in politics, whatever it was, five years. He is so much richer that it, or look at it from the, um, the side of, uh, of being an actor. He was an actor yet. He's richer than all like name the top A-listers in Hollywood. And he's richer than all of them, you know? So he is, he is involved in some shady dealings, and most of that is coming from our current administration. You could look at it and say that our current administration is just trying to CYA, basically, and paying him off. But if so, then it's a nonsense, dangerous game that they're playing. I, I don't know. But I would say, and I mentioned this before again, um, that it, it serves so many globalist agendas, nuclear war. Number one, a crackdown on... Uh, uh, nuclear arsenals. As I mentioned, the World Economic Forum is very verbose on that topic. Po it's the best possible argument for a global world government is that is nuclear weapons. Because if you're all the same person, the same administration, if you will, then you can trust everybody that we're getting rid of all the nuclear weapons. We're going to destroy them all because we're all one government and we all have one plan in mind to do that. It's like one of the few things on the in the world that can get a normal person to say, you know what, we should have a global government, especially after a massive, massive, massive loss of life. Whether it can and it can just be like one city; it doesn't have to be a full-scale uh, exchange of nuclear weapons. Though I think that that's looking more and more like somewhat like what they want to do. But anyway, also this whole carbon agenda makes is intensified. Not only that, but now we have a, a, a ecological disaster on a massive scale that needs to be this whole carbon thing. I mean, uh, it all goes into overdrive now because because now if we were on the edge of a global uh, 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 
cliff of, in terms of environment now where it's like, you know, we're five minutes to midnight or whatever. So the crackdown on that. And all this is in the context of the greatest war issues ever. So in, the, in that scenario, you always see crackdown on dissident voices. So it would just be a natural fit for all these Ministry of Truth things and, and whatever to, to crack down on dissidents, to jail them, etc. But I think that the main thing, and I'm going to do a separate podcast about this, is that this is a satanic ploy to get the world to believe that they are now in the end times. I think this whole thing that started with Hal Lindsey and Russia and Gog Magog, almost every evangelical church that believes in Bible prophecy believes that. And I'm, I don't know if I'm even exaggerating there. I think that Hal Lindsey's thing did such immense damage that every church that believes in the end times believes that nuclear war is coming with Russia soon. I mean, am I wrong about that? Does your church believe that? Have you heard that in a sermon recently? My guess is you probably have. If, you're, if your pastor is any way connected to sort of, you know, these uh, uh, current events kind of things. So the church after this will be hyper-focused, as they always have been in history, that they are in the end times. Except now they've got all this quote-unquote air quotes proof that they are in the end times. And so when the global government then, uh, uh, you know, expands around them and it's obviously evil because it's this decadent, nasty, wrong about everything, power-grabbing, just picture of evil, right? I mean, you're going to be hard pressed to find a pastor that doesn't preach every single Sunday that they are in the end times in the same way that the pastors in the Inquisition and the pastors during the Catholic Church reign of tyranny over the gospel did the same thing, preached that they're in the end times, because after all, look at how well they're killing Christians. And my entire point is, this is the first time, that's happened throughout history a kajillion times where the churches thought that they were in the end times because they were being killed because Satan kills the church and that's just what he does. But this time it's going to be more severe. They're going to be more Christians killed. But more importantly, the whole world is going to have the same enemy. The whole world, and I speak of Christians, the Christian world will for the first time have the same hated enemy. And so, man, it's going to be so pervasive that this uh, global government that's going to take over is the is the end times. And look, you're saying to yourself, well, Chris, what if it is that system? What if it is the end time system? And you're just, you know, your theories are just so wrong. Uh, what, how, what harm is it in believing it's the end time system? The danger of that is that the Antichrist plans on saving us from it. The Antichrist plans on saving us from the new world order. And he wants you to hate it. And he wants you to believe that you're in the end times. He wants the whole Christian world to believe without a single shred of doubt in their mind that they are in the end times, that whoever's leading this thing uh, will be the Antichrist. He's going to go so far as to make sure that whoever leads it will have a name that adds up to 666 in some way. He's going to force you to get the digital ID. It's going to be the guy that comes in and defeats Three of those kings and that 10 nation thing that's going to develop around, there's going to be a guy that comes in. He's able to defeat him. He's going to liberate Israel because part of this thing, and I don't, this is a big deal that people think that Israel was, I don't want to go into that right now, but he's going to liberate Israel. It's going to be seen as an intense victory for the Christian world. And we are going to be so beaten down and desperate and hungry for a savior that we are going to believe what him and the false prophet are selling. And it's going to be very Christian-y, 
very Christian-y. And if they've already got you to believe the non, you know, and my whole point about this too is that everything he's doing is this kind of like Kmart version of the millennium. What a person who would has supernatural power, but is certainly not the Messiah, what that would look like if somebody with supernatural power, but not the Messiah would try to look like he's accomplishing all the prophecies of the millennial reign and beyond is exactly what I think that the Antichrist is doing. But of course, I'm repeating myself. So moving on to the lockdowns in China. So this is a big deal, guys. It's been over a month now since the streets of Shanghai, and there's another city in there, and I'm sure other cities in China, not just these two, are totally shut down. I mean, there's not cars on the streets. There's not people walking around. They act like some of the factories are, are working, but only people that live at the factories and not that many people are even there to, to do it. The, the ships... Look, it takes whatever, about a month and a half or something like that for the ships to reach American ports. And so now we're about to see what happens when none of those ships are coming and they're not likely to start anytime soon. And when they do start, it's going to be this massive log, log jam. And just it is going to make it is going to make Walmart's empty, guys. This is a big, big thing. This is about to go down with the supply chain. We, we think we have supply chain issues now. It's going to be real. And let me propose a theory that could be a part of this. Now, we're all on the precipice, or is it precipice? I don't know, of war. I mean, st serious stuff. Is it, one small thing now could, could trigger massive nuclear war or a world war. Ta Taiwan has always been in the sights of China. So if they do that, there is a really good chance that we are just declare war against China or Russia-China block or however it looks. And if China knows something that we don't, maybe that they plan on attacking Taiwan on such and such a day, or they plan on totally getting rid of the dollar as a reserve currency and doing their own thing, or doing something that's going to just be a non-starter for the West and just go ahead and moving forward with some kind of plan, and they know that that's going to be the end of their good relationships with the West, uh, well... If that was me, I would say, let's pretend like we have really bad, bad COVID for all these months and we won't ship a single thing. And about the time that they realize that they don't, that they're completely screwed because they don't have any parts for anything, right about that time when it hits them and there's no chance of them getting anything, then we'll do our, our thing. Let's put them in this, the worst possible position. So that could be a way to explain what's China doing with this? Is there really a, a new variant out there that's so dangerous or is China just so inept or their politicians trying to do something that's new and exciting with COVID or it's just an economic hit job? They're doing this because it's going to hurt us way, way more than it hurts them. Now, they're risking, if that's the case, an actual revolution in China because this is going to cause a ton of misery in China. But again, in this new system, power is everything. And all the new toys and stuff that they have for crowd control and, and different things, I'm sure, just is crazy in China. That they kind of probably don't even worry about that. And I expect that these lockdowns are mostly used in China to kill dissidents and to steal their organs or whatever they're doing. Because under the cover of COVID, everybody's dying anyway. And, you know, they can just go into your house and take you. And I bet they find the dissidents and they have COVID and they need to go to the special COVID ward or whatever. It's, I'm sure that happens every day in China. And uh, anyway, so there's some happy thoughts about uh, China. So a couple things. What can you do about that? I mean, I think I've been saying for a while now, you got to 
really do some practical prepping things. I talked about that in a recent podcast, practical prepping something, or I don't know how I titled it. But I do think it's about to get harder to do. So if you got a trip to Costco planned out, it's probably not a bad time to go ahead and put that on the schedule this week because it's going to get serious. And there, there's going to be a time very soon, here's a prediction for you, that hoarders are going to be put on the same level as anti-vaxxers were in 2021. You know, I was thinking about the, the sort of virtuous anger and killing that's going to go on in the, if people are truly hungry. And I don't know if it's going to get to that point or not. I honestly don't. I know that the food supply issues, I could talk about that at length too, but I don't see any resolution to any of that stuff. Um, and at least in the short term, we're going to have major food problems. And anyway, I was going to say about the, uh, like a genuinely well-meaning secular dad, right, who is not going to sit there and watch his kids starve to death. What does that guy do in that situation? Well, that guy becomes a vigilante. He becomes a criminal. He becomes a killer, a murderer. That's what he does. Because the highest and uh, highest virtue in that world is your family and your children not letting a bad thing happen to your children. And that's a good virtue to have. But if it's your highest virtue, then it leads you in this situation to murder. And you'd say, well, they could just go to the bread lines or the whatever. I don't think that there's going to be bread lines. I don't, I mean, we sold much of our national stocks to China of these reserves of wheat and things that countries are supposed to have for just that kind of scenario. We sold it. And you just can't snap your fingers and, and get wheat to grow out of the ground. So at least for one harvest season, we could be in big trouble because there's not a lot of backup for that kind of stuff. So around harvest time, I'd say, you know, uh, midsummer, late fall uh, to late fall, we'll, we'll know the truth of this. If it's going to be a big deal or if it's going to be whatever. But one thing I think it is going to be a big deal for is anybody in the third world. This is one of the things that Alex Jones always harps on about. And it's a very good point. It's something that I know uh, to some extent with people in my church, you know, do um, uh, Kenyan uh, or not Kenya. I think just Africa in general. I'm not sure which country. But during the lockdowns in COVID, you know, COVID wasn't that bad, but people were dying in the streets because of starvation. And those numbers are crazy. When we get a cold, they die. And I mean that economically. And I think I can't remember the exact phrase that people use. But basically, if you're already spending 50% of your income on food, then and food goes up 500% or whatever, then that alone makes a supply and demand issue that they don't even get shipped the food to their country, let alone have the option to go buy it even if they had the money. So, And there's no certainly no welfare or anything else out there like that. So you just die. That's just how that goes. Um, horrible stories. I think I've mentioned it here in the podcast in India during the lockdowns. Exactly that scenario. A man uh, about to kill his entire family rather than watch him starve to death because that's what happens when you don't have resources. We've never been in a situation where resources themselves were the problem. We could always get the resources because the government has the resources. We could go on welfare. We could get government cheese or whatever. But if there is no resources to have, regardless of the money, then you get into some problems. And I think, again, part of this is, uh, and I look at what Satan is doing here as sort of like a, um, a, a fake a fake version of the end times. He needs the famine part to happen and needs it to be real for everybody so that he can put that in the horseman. The horseman's already come. The famine is, is already here. He need everything is going to happen once in a fake way before and then a real way later. And the real is going to be way worse than the fake. Um, 
at least that is the theory. But either way, I'm telling you, famines are going to come and more. Uh, I do think that here's some practical stuff that you could do. Um, I do think church churches are going to be the hub for this. Churches are the last thing standing of any good stuff here. And I've mentioned this before, but it's because of the way that Jesus instituted the church with him as the head, the elders, et cetera. That whole structure is very, very hard to corrupt if people are genuine. It certainly is able to corrupt, but it's hard to corrupt. And it's going to be one of the last places that you, that you can't, uh, that you can trust. And I think that these kind of food kitchens, if you can get enough stuff to where you can serve the community, like one, two meals a day, have a service there, pray for people, do ministry during that time. And in churches, it's good because as I mentioned, you're going to have these dads are likely to kill somebody, right? So the churches give you the option to have uh, uh, security there and do all the things that you're going to need to do to protect that. So people have a safe place to put these stocks or, or whatever. I've mentioned this in a video that I did on my uh, Rumble channel, if you can find it, it probably uh, it's on my podcast feed somewhere, which is the uh, churches, prepping, prepping churches, something like that. All right, I think I'm going to go ahead and cut this short today. I did want to mention, it's not out yet. I will, I'll probably do another announcement when it is out. But uh, uh, Alan Kirshner has written a book called A Linguistic Approach to Revelation 19.11 through 26 and the Millennium Bind Binding of Satan. It's being released on Brill Publishing, which is sort of an academic publisher. And it is scheduled, I think, for October 2022. You can uh, get uh, uh, different uh, versions of it or I think uh, availability alerts and this kind of thing. But I do want to mention it briefly. It's uh, part of, or at least on the subject of his dissertation that he did, his PhD dissertation. And I think that it's a, an important subject because even though it's extremely technical, it's the kind of thing, it's the kind of answer to the critical scholarship about uh, amillennialism. There's a, a great number of uh, people that don't believe that the 1,000-year period is even a real thing. And most of us look at that and say, well, just read Revelation 20. There it is. It's crystal clear that it is. And they, of course, try to allegorize it and do different things. But this is kind of a uh, catch-22 for them. And what he's done is basically said, look, from the Battle of Armageddon in, Re in Revelation 19, there is uh, linguistic and interpretive uh, reasons to say that they must be connected. There is a chronological intention from the Battle of Armageddon to not only the beginning of the thousand-year period, but the end of the thousand-year period. You can follow this thread all the way through, thereby making it impossible in the uh, to believe that there is no millennium, that it's just a, a fake thing. So it's a really great answer to the scholarly amillennial um, and you could probably contact Alan about that if you wanted it at Eschatos Ministries, and I'll eventually put a link to the uh, book when it does show up. Remember to go to BibleProphecyArchive.com if you're interested in that, and I will see you next time. Bye.